I go to practices and there's some coaches that will, will spend the last 10 minutes of practice every single time I'm, I'm there on something that's going to happen in the last four minutes. Fouling up three. I'm talking about practicing fouling up three. I'm talking about getting a shot versus a team that's going to switch all five when you need a three. It's the special teams of basketball. It is your job as a coach to prepare these kids for every single situation that will happen in late game. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome back to the podcast for a March Madness special, ESPN's Fran Fraschilla. Coach Fraschilla is here today to discuss the biggest trends in the latest college basketball season, the difference in having dominant bigs or guards in the NCAA tournament, pace of play, preparing wrinkles on offense and defense, and we play a special March Madness edition of Start, Sub, or Sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube. And subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy this special March Madness conversation with Coach Fran Fraschilla. Coach, thanks so much for coming back. It's good to see you again. It is a pleasure. I'm so excited for you guys. I, I, you know how I feel about what you're doing. You're, uh, you're educating coaches. Yeah, thanks, Thank coach. you, Coach. We wanted to start throwing it to you with trends. Yeah. You've had a front row seat to some of the best basketball all year. As we head into the tournament, things you've seen you like throughout this season with the game. Well, it's a continuous back and forth chess matches. You know, um, it's been going on for 50, 60, 70 years in the game. I always say nothing really has ever been invented. I was watching a little clip tonight on Twitter about the Princeton teams of the 90s, Pete Carrill's teams, you know. And if you really think about it, the guys were saying, his former players, like five or six of them are in coaching now. Phil Carmody, Mitch Henderson's the coach at Princeton, Joe Scott's back at Air Force. Think about it. Four perimeter guys, all could pass, and a passing big man. And when you watch offense today at the college level, some really good offensive teams, you know, the alignments not, might not be exactly the same, but, you know, the idea of playing uh, in space is back, you know, like it, it was around in the 40s, 50s, you know, Pete Carrill and his mentor, Butch Van Bredikoff. They brought it to college basketball in the 60s and 70s and 80s at Princeton. And it's back. It's a continuous cycle. So here's what I've seen. Because of the prevalence of, sm of, of smaller lineups, maybe the last 10 years in college, with four out, sometimes five out, and we'll get into five out in a little bit, we've seen to combat that more switching. Um, we've seen more switching than ever. It's not a new thing. What I'm seeing is the back and forth, the chess match between a team that's on offense playing smaller. Defenses are now combating that. And just in the last season or two, guys, I've seen antidotes to switching. Boomerang passes. High seals uh, made famous by my buddy Yesikavichis when he was at Zalgadis. The high seal over the top pass to the big. We're seeing snake ball screens versus drop coverages at the college level. So my point to you is that we're the, the college coaches are adjusting. They're watching the international guys. They're watching the NBA teams. They're coming up with solutions for switches. They're coming up with solutions for pick and roll coverages. And Mike Lombardi, who was an NFL general manager, says it this way. The great coaches are playing chess. The bad coaches are playing the game Battleship. Remember Battleship? Yeah. <laughs> you're basically guessing, you know? <laughs> yeah. you're, you're calling a play and you're just guessing and hoping it will work. But I'm seeing more and more coaches playing chess at the college level and adjusting to the adjustments. So that's a couple of things. I'm seeing more ice coverages, more weak coverages versus pick and roll. 
defensively. On offense, we're seeing more five out than ever, as you guys know, playing through centers at the top of the key, dribble handoffs. There's a lot more advancement, I think, in pick and roll reads, teaching players that it's okay to leave your feet to make a pass. I always say, don't jump to look for a pass, but it's okay to jump to make a pass. If I'm driving right and I can throw a hook pass to the other corner because the, we've got the tagger sucked in on the roller, we're going we're gonna to hook pass it or jump pass it. So we're seeing more of that. Obviously, ghost screens are like America's play right now, okay? <laughs> right. It used to be cross screen, double down, you know, box set was America's play when I was coaching 20 years ago. And now ghost screens have become really important. Uh, boomerangs, as I mentioned. The interesting thing about ghost screens, I'd love to get your guys' thought on this. Texas, for example, as we talk about teams in the tournament, they use ghost screens not necessarily as an antidote to switching. They use ghost screens to create a little bit of indecision to allow their three guards to play isolation basketball. So to almost give that guard a little bit of a head start because there's a little bit of hesitation as to whether to switch or stay on a ghost screen. Yep. I've had so many coaches ask me, how would you guard a ghost screen? And so many of them asked me that I know it's an effective offensive weapon. So like, yeah. for example, Texas uses the ghost screen in order to create that momentary bit of indecision so that when the guard decides he's not switching and he gets back onto the offensive player with the ball, that offensive player has a step advantage. And I have seen the Mancho Fernandez, as I said to you guys before we came on the air, the Mancho Fernandez reverse angle ball screen. I summarize it by saying a lot of coaches in the off season of the pandemic year that we've all been through have really done a good job of adding new wrinkles or changing their styles and philosophies and tinkering with their offenses, I think, more than ever this year because they finally had the time to spend on studying the game the way guys like me and you guys do. And uh, I think we've seen it. Yeah. Well, coach, that was like an A to Z of all the, the good stuff in college. I, know. I, know. I loved it. To your point about ghost screens, we just had coach Jenny Busick on from the Dallas yeah. Mavericks. And we talked about the ghost screen with her and how they use it yeah. with Luka Doncic. And she was saying, yeah, it's just like you mentioned, it's just a momentary type of confusion. And, mm -hmm. you know, defenses are so used to hedging or drop coverage or ice that all of a sudden right. you get a guy just flying through. It's a lot different to guard. It's different to guard. I'll tell you where it's really effective. When I cover games on TV, I'm always, you know, making light of some things I see. And the high ball screen play has been America's late clock play for, right. for the last 10 years, right? And I was always a proponent of false action. Like we had a late clock play that started out as a one four low. Now I hate one four low because you can zone it. You can go one, two, two out of that set. The high ball screen, you could trap your best player in with the ball and take it out of his hands. But the go screen is really cool at a, in a late clock situation because you got the one four set and here comes the guy flying up to the ball and then he disappears. I, that's what I love about the go screen. And I don't know where I heard I think I might have said it on TV about just disappearing, you know, and it's so easy to remember a go screen. The screener disappears. Yeah. He comes up like he's screening and he's gone. And that is a great late clock alternative to the mundane one four low where there's more people in the lane than on the four Oh five. Um, and <laughs> Uh, you like that reference there, guys? Yeah, I love it. It hits home. It's a and good all, one. <laughs> and also, uh, for the California people listening, you know exactly yeah. what we're talking about. And then, the, and then the high ball screen, Too many. there's too many things that can go wrong, mainly that they can take the ball out of your best player's hands. Absolutely. Yeah. That go screen is really effective, I think, is a late clock. Yep. I think teams then will bring up that guy to flare that go screener just to then make more space for yeah. the lane. and. If there is confusion, then that ghost screener can be open on that flare. For the coaches listening, lots of creative ways. To, that ghost screen can be used as just a decoy for the for the ball handler. Or once he goes, you can flare him. Yeah. And that sets up a slip screen and yeah. more confusion. And, you know, if it's not the pass to the flare or the slip, that's just two more players and their defenders who are now out of the play from helping on your guard getting downhill. Exactly. 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 Yeah. So it's, it's fun to keep tinkering with those things. Yeah. Coach, moving into the tournament now. Yeah. 
gosh, a lot we could talk about, a lot we will talk about. But one of the things yeah. we wanted to start with is styles and things that win tournament games. Pat and I have been talking a lot about pace of play yeah. and style of play lately and how that affects you know, a tournament game rather than just you know, an overall season, how you play with yeah. your pace. I think it's hard to, uh, and this goes for some very good teams. I think it's hard to win playing an ultra fast paced style, in my opinion, in the tournament. And there are teams that do it. We know Alabama runs. We know the Zags run. Arkansas is a good up-tempo yep. team for sure. I, I watched a lot of Oklahoma State lately. Their pace is fast. But I also think that in a tournament environment, teams can really dictate defensively more how your offensive pace is than maybe normal because if you're a fast-break running team, I can decide not to send anybody to the glass in a tournament environment, especially when I'm the underdog, you know? Right. So, like, I have found – I'll never forget playing the Princeton style when Joe Scott was at Air Force. We never got any fast-break baskets because – they never gave you an opportunity to run because they never went to the offensive glass. To that point, if a Gonzaga or an Arkansas or an Alabama can impose their will, they're more likely to do it early in the tournament against teams that don't have that type of athleticism. But I do think in tournament play, you have to be able to win at different paces. Yeah. And that ordinarily means that you're going to need great guard play, Dan, which is another area to talk about, which is, you know, guards have to become the extension of the coach in the tournament. And I think good teams can play fast and slow and need to, because you don't always get to dictate the pace of the, of your offensive play. You have to be concerned about how the defense is going to, you know, cause you to play slower. Yeah. I think just to add to that, I went down my own little rabbit hole today, looking at pace of play and tournament teams and just interesting. So of the top 50 teams this year in pace of play, only 10 of those teams made the NCAA tournament. Yeah. Of the bottom 50 teams in pace of play, 18 of them are in the tournament. And then if you look, you take the 68 teams, the average pace of play is 206 out of 357. So just average pace of play for the teams are trending a little bit yeah. slower. And that's just an interesting stat. I think another reason for that is, and I think offense wins. NCAA tournament games, by the way. But I think many of these teams who are in the tournament who have had good years, they control pace of play by how good they are defensively, too. So I think sometimes, and you know, we all love the Ken Palm numbers, but the beauty of the Ken Palm numbers is you have to always put Ken Palm numbers into context. Yeah. You know, if I'm talking about a team rebounding at a 45% rate on the offensive glass and getting almost one out of every two shots back. I had colleagues who were throwing those numbers out, but you have to add, well, the average is 29%. Okay. So if you're getting 29, if you're getting three out of every 10 of your shots back, then four and a half is extraordinary, you know, like a West Virginia or North Carolina. So anyway, I, I think pace of play is interesting according to Ken Palm numbers, because oftentimes pace of play is dictated more so by your defense and that's why I like that Ken in recent years has divided up, you know, offense and defensive pace of play. Sticking on this Ken Palm and the statistical outlook, yeah. as you look at the teams of 68 and you're just solely looking at like their stats, what stats translate well to winning kind of these tournament environments? I think balance. I, I think it's been proven that, you know, the teams that get to a final four, for example, most of them are going to be somewhere in the top 30 in terms of offense and defense. And that makes sense because when we talk about teams that can win the, the fun, win the whole thing every year, the average fan can figure out that there's probably six to eight to 10 teams at most. The numbers usually back that up. There's sometimes an aberration of a team like, let's say, Iowa, who's just great offensively. Believe it or not, they're better defensively than ever. And I think they're probably in the 60s defensively, which is not great. But I always said about Ken Palm numbers, like, I can watch a couple games and get a fairly good idea of a trend, but Ken's numbers watch every game, right? That's what analytics does for us. That's why we've all fallen in love as coaches. And I'm talking about the coaches that are active now. We've fallen in love with Ken Palm numbers because they get to watch every game. Analytics watches every game. Yeah, I can't watch every game Kansas plays, but I can read after 20 games Ken's numbers and get a general idea of what they're successful at. So I just think to answer your question, 
you know, the balance of offense and defense and being relatively efficient at both. And then to expand it further, I think, you know, the four factors is as good a numerical analytic as there possibly can be when you talk about, you know, effective field goal rate, turnover rate, offensive rebounding rate and free throw rate. Mm-hmm. All those things seem to add up to, you know, if the, if those numbers trend in a positive direction, the likelihood is you're having a really good year. But I think overall, to win it all, to be successful in a tournament, it's been proven, I think, by and large, that you have to be a team that's, if not equally efficient on both ends, if you're an elite offensive team, you've got to at least be at least an above average defensive team and vice versa. Coach, can we talk about guard play versus post play? in the NCAA tournament. And I think you have a really interesting deal this year with Iowa and having Luca Garza as a a dominant post and Iowa such a great team. And then you've got the Cade Cunninghams and the Jalen Suggs on the other end with guard play. What are your thoughts on winning with dominant guards and bigs? Well, I think, first of all, uh, you know, just doing some homework before I came on, when you think of playing through bigs, let's take the power bigs, right? Power bigs, Talking about Garza, Kofi Coburn from Illinois, who's terrific. Derek Culver from West Virginia. These are some guys I just thought of. The kid Liddell from Ohio State, Travion Williams from Purdue, Timmy at Gonzaga, and then Colton Cole from Abilene Christian, a very sneaky team, a really well-coached team. All those guys are power bigs who basically can put one or two of your bigs in foul trouble in the game. You know, when a guy like Culver averages seven fouls per 40 drawn, that's essentially two bigs in foul trouble right there. Somebody's got four and somebody's got three. You know what I mean? And yeah. we all know what we didn't know about analytics years ago when I first got into coaching. We knew that getting a having a power big, let's say in a tournament environment, is going to get your bigs out of the game. And your second line big that comes in is going to be exposed more. And, all, and that means that the defense is going to have to adjust and potentially have to commit a second defender to your big. And now all of a sudden our perimeter guys are shooting a little bit better shots and also getting a chance to drive closeouts. It all kind of fits together to me. So the power big is always important to me because of his ability to change the game from inside out. That's something we thought of 40 years ago. And then analytics, you know, all of a sudden I'm looking at like FIBA stats and I see that Patrick, you know this, you look at a fever stat and some big guy in the BBL drew 10 fouls tonight. You know, that's not a stat that's in a normal college basketball stat line. That's critical. Now, the other thing about bigs in this tournament is because of the way the game has evolved, we now have bigs as facilitators in five out offense. You know, kids like the kid at Loyola or Chicago, Cameron Crutwig, who's a great passer, you know, kind of the Jokic effect, you know, think about it. Jokic, we don't really say this, but if you think about it, he may be the best passer in the world. Maybe. If he's not, he's in the top three or four, right? Yeah. In the world. I'm talking about 7 billion yeah. people, right? The analogy is at the college level now, bigs as facilitators is, is more prevalent than ever. A big that can handle the ball in a five out that can dribble handoff or, you know, ball screen or slip screen or pick and pop or pick and short roll, pick and roll all the way to the rim those guys become facilitators. So there's, you know, you got those bigs, you got stretch bigs like Jay Huff at Virginia, who is equally dangerous and more dangerous as a seven foot one guy away from the basket. And then, you know, on the other side of the ball in Texas, I've seen this all year. They've got two big kids in Jones and Sims, Jericho Sims, Kai Jones, who can both guard all five positions, literally. That's not an exaggeration. They can Mm -hmm. guard all five positions. So now when you're in your, four out offense, we're okay because we're keeping the ball in front of us because our two big guys are rock solid at, you know, switching on the perimeter and being solid. So, and then the last thing is board crashers, you know, Carolina offensive rebounds, Houston, a team I saw yesterday. I think Dan, I told you about them. I watched them yesterday and I love them because they can beat you on offense and they can beat you on defense, but they can definitely beat you on extra possessions because they get 10 more shots a game in a game because they are a great offensive rebounding team and their defense is solid enough that they're a high turnovers force team. So I'm throwing a lot out there, but in terms of bigs, yeah, what kind of bigs are we talking about? And as coaches watch the NCAA tournament, you'll see 
the variety of big men being used in different ways by creative coaches. Coach, in terms of the power big and this kind of this debate between guard play and post play, yeah, is a power big easier to take out of the game than a guard? Like we said, these Cade Cunninghams, these really ball dominant. Is it easier to take away a Garza and when you have the time to scheme for it than a guard? I believe it is, Patrick. I think if you gave me a choice, I'd always rather have the superior guard play in a game versus the superior big man play. I do. I think that despite the great year some of those big men have had, we can scheme to double the ball out of a big's hands. We can zone a big. You know, we can play five against three on one side of the floor with a big. We can front the big and and help from behind. So, and I also think that guards are important because when you get to the tournament and teams scout you well and teams can have time to scheme for you and know your offense. Chuck Daly used to say, the great Chuck Daly, the Hall of Fame coach, Pistons, what will the player do when the play breaks down because the play will break down? Mm-hmm. And so at every level, I think that those guards that have the ability to go get a shot, create a shot for others is critical. Also getting back to tempo, those guards are the extension of the coach on the floor. I asked Mike Boynton, the terrific young coach at Oklahoma State last week, I said, what makes their senior guard at Texas, Matt Coleman, so good? He says, that's Shaka Smart on the court. Mm -hmm. You know, he's been a four-year starter. He thinks like Shaka. He knows when to push it. He knows when to slow it down. He knows when one guy hasn't gotten a shot in five minutes and needs to get the ball. He knows when not to throw it to a guy who just took two bad quick shots. Um, that great guard mindset, I think, in a tournament atmosphere with the pressure, that great guard mindset is also the guy that's more likely to make 80% of his free throws in a late game situation. Wow. So I think I'd rather have guard play. I, w- I do. Going back to style play a little bit for a second, zones. Teams that yep. are good zone teams. You know, Syracuse always surprises people because it's hard to prepare mm-hmm. against. You know, Iowa's got an interesting zone that they go to quite a bit. Yes. Why is the zone so effective in March Madness tournament for teams to figure out? I'll tell you another team that you'll agree with is Oregon. Dana Allman's great. There's games where they're in the zone. There's other games where they're matching up out of it. They're going to press you. Like what I love about Oregon, if you think about it, they're always three-quarter court pressing back to their matchup zone. If they're playing a less talented team, they're going to tighten that press. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If they're playing a more talented team and they want to control tempo, they're going to soft press you. I call it a nuisance press. Uh-huh. Take some time off the shot clock, back to their zone, and they don't have to guard you as long in the zone. When I describe man-to-man defense on TV to basketball fans, I call it their fastball. And a zone, because most teams will play mostly man in some zone, the zone is the curveball. In the case of Syracuse, because they play it so well and so often, it's the Mariano Rivera cutter. It's the, it's the pitch that you know is coming and it's going to drop out of the strike zone and you're either going to swing at it or break your bat on a bat handle. I think the zone is difficult because we all have great man-to-man plays. When I was coming up with first no-shot clock and then a 45-second clock, you had to have a great zone offense. Now that college basketball is 20, 30 seconds, you don't, coaches don't spend as much time on zone offense because they feel like they have to have their man offense down. And that can be a big mistake because when they do see a good zone, their kids are not prepared for it. Coach, hearing you talk about these zones and the problems they cause, you know, I start to think as teams are preparing for this tournament, our coaches I mean, they're seeing the same thing, and it's a game of possessions. Are yeah. they thinking, hey, let's add a zone or let's add a press after a timeout, whatever we can do to win a possession? Yeah, it's funny you say that, Patrick. When I was a young coach, the one thing I did every season was we put a couple things in in midseason that we practiced. And some days it might be 10 minutes. Some days maybe we didn't get to it. We were preparing for an opponent. But if we had like five days for the next opponent – that first day of practice, I might put in a couple new offensive wrinkles or a lob, a lob play versus the zone, right, to get an easy basket. And we would run it and practice it and save it for postseason, either our conference tournament or NCA or NIT. And it was a great way to keep your team engaged 
And I remember one year, John Calipari gave me a, we were both young coaches. We both came up together. I've literally known him since 1978 when we worked Dean Smith's basketball camp. That's how old we are. <laughs> and, um, and so we, when we were young head coaches, we would trade plays. And he gave me a late last second play. We called it winner. And we put it in like on January 15th. And we worked on it about three days a week in practice, probably five minutes at a time. And we never needed it. I told the team, we're going to run this play when we need a basket. And it just so happened that throughout the end of the regular season and into our conference tournament, we really didn't need that particular play late game. But sure enough, we're in a conference championship game against Niagara. I'm at Manhattan. It's my first year as a head coach. And it's a great game. And we we get a defensive rebound with 12 seconds to go. And or there's a foul. Score is tied. And the defense calls timeout, the other team. So as my guys are coming to the bench, they're all whispering. Winner. The play was called winner. My bench guys were yelling, coach, winner, winner. <laughs> my, my assistant coach is, coach, you want my winner here? The guys coming off the court said, coach, it's time. So I make sure we got, all right, guys, we're going to run winner here, okay? It's a, it's like a reverse angle screen, and we're staggering a back screen on the backside for our big coming from the opposite side of the court to the basket. But, but we also had a back screen lob for our first screener at the top of the key, if you can imagine that. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Okay? And we could either throw it to the big or the first guy on the stagger flashed to the ball side elbow. Okay. So we had post up, ball side elbow, back screen lob on one play. But yeah. but this is the beauty of the play. Sonny Smith, a great coach at Auburn, uh, Coach Barkley, was a great rebounding coach. That play is actually designed with the missed shot in mind. Because if we yeah. get the ball in the low post, or if we get the ball at the ball side elbow with a jump shot, we are back screening our second big to the backside of the basket. So as the shot goes up, as Jeff Van Gundy always says, 70% of misses go to the other side. That's right. So yeah. we designed the offense with the missed shot in mind. And we get the rebound and get fouled with one second to go, and the kid makes a free throw. That's awesome. <laughs> it is. It's kind of cool. And But the moral of the story is your kids will really gain confidence in you as a coach if you save a couple things for postseason. To answer your question, Patrick, most coaches don't have the guts to put in a new defense going into postseason. Bill Self has thrown a triangle and two out there on occasion. One year he did it in a sweet 16, in a lead eight game with eight minutes to go against North Carolina, played man the whole game with eight minutes to go in a close game. He went triangle and two. And I don't think Coach Williams, no disrespect, he's in the Hall of Fame. I don't think Coach Williams still knows they were in triangle and two. <laughs> Final eight minutes of an elite eight game. You got to be gutsy to do something unique that your team hasn't really worked on much. Two things. One, your play reminds me of, and I'm, I'm blanking, but what was the out of bounds play that the Suns ran for Barkley where they threw it off the backboard, a miss, and he, he got the layup just to win it? I don't remember that, but it sounds cool. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The second thing, before we move to a special edition of Start Sub Sit, Oof. we do want to hit up another topic, and that's crunch time in the tournament down the stretch and yep. you know i want to start with alabama so you know pat and i were talking beforehand we're going through stats we're looking at numbers and you know alabama just does not shoot mid-range jump shots and yes. the last couple of you know podcasts and guests we've had on they talked about the value of a mid-range shot down the stretch because it's the type of shot that you're more likely to get late in games i'm a believer in the mid-range shot because it sets up both the three ball and also the drives into the paint and, and the dish offs and dunker spots and, and the kick out threes. So I'm a big believer in a mid-range shot, especially with guys that can make it. I'm, I'm thinking of Baylor, for example. The last time I checked, their three guards are shooting 67% inside the three-point arc. And if you watch them play, they are a great floater team because they practice those shots and they're really good at it. So I'm a big believer in the mid-range shot because I just think it's a shot that can be perfected with practice. And it's there for you, especially in crunch time, because teams will chase you off the three-point line, you know, whether it's in pick and roll or just open court plays. 
you're again getting back to superior guard play those superior guards can get to that place and then they have to make the decision as to whether they have a shot they can make or where is my out where is my option where is my outlet does the big help up off the baseline so i can drop off you know that they suck in where we can kick out i don't know how it'll affect alabama i do think number one their pace is going to be challenged maybe not early in the tournament but certainly when they get to teams of their ilk uh, and also that teams will chase them off the three-point line and make them, if possible, settle for twos. I know that they abhor the mid-range, so it's going to be interesting to see how they react. And I'll be watching that now that you've pointed that out to me, without a doubt. Coach, staying within the, this crunch time and yeah. you know, talking about guard play, but also like having star players or talent in crunch time, what yeah. seems like in the long run trend out better, whether it's you have like a K Cunningham versus a team that they don't have that draft pick, that top pick, but they execute really well. But what translates more successfully in the, in these crunch time moments? Uh, you know, if you made me choose, like if you, if I were, let's just say if I was starting or subbing right now, yeah, uh, I, I would probably start the great player, honestly. Now, you know, Princeton 96 backdoor, double backdoor against UCLA, beautiful basketball. So execution wins. There's no doubt. But if you ask me who I'm starting, I'm starting the star player because of Chuck Daly's philosophy that teams are going to take away some of your best stuff. And sometimes you have to have a guy that can just go get a basket or make a play for his teammates. And so in that environment, that's why it's important, honestly, whether it's at the high school level where you have, I'm a big believer, like in a high school level where you're not at a Catholic school and you can't recruit. um, (laughs) That's a good one. Uh, You you have to develop your kids, but I also think at the college level that you have to, you know, guard, I think guards are critical to, you know, the success of your team. And so that great guard can really make plays in crunch time late in the game. And I'd probably err on the side of having the great individual player, assuming he's a teammate, good teammate, but also the guy that can go get his own shot. I I think what's really underrated in college basketball is the guy that's gifted enough at the college level that can go get a shot without anybody running anything for him. You know, you're running an offense, you're running like side-to-side ball screen continuity, and then the clock's running down and the coach just runs something and there's and all of a sudden, this kid's got the ball and just go make a play. Go make a freaking play. And I think, <laughs> right. I think that I'd rather have that. Absolutely. One more follow-up from me. And you've been around a ton of these coaches. You've seen so many of these games. In these late-game situations, what are you seeing from the coaches that routinely have success? So what stands out right away is the UB Brown line, the notoriety of the coach is directly proportional to his team's execution under pressure. Okay, think about that for a second. Okay, to write it down. Yeah, the notoriety <laughs> of the coach, you'll hear it, you can play it back, is okay. directly <laughs> proportional to his team's execution under pressure. I heard that at a, we used to call the medalist clinic 30 years ago, and then it became the Nike clinics. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is practice. I go to practices, and there's some coaches that will, will spend the last 10 minutes of practice every single time I'm, I'm there on something that's going to happen in the last four minutes. Fouling up three. I'm talking about practicing fouling up three. I'm talking about getting a shot versus a team that's going to switch all five when you need a three. I'm talking about tip outs on missed free throws late in the game. It's the special teams of basketball. It is your job as a coach to prepare these kids for every single situation that will happen in late game. Again, it gets back to preparing your kids. Well, Coach, when we first had you on the podcast, we didn't get a chance to do Star Subsitter over at Underrated. So we, we've we got a, a special March Madness edition of Star okay. Subsit for you. <laughs> Don't give me three coaches now. But I gotta, no, no. And I got to sit somebody the whole game. Don't give me a choice of three coaches. <laughs> no, so yeah, we'll just have some fun uh, with these. So to start, so these are all... They also have different themes to them. Okay. So just quickly for anybody's listening for the first time here, we're going to give you three topics or teams here. You'll start one, you'll sub one, you'll sit one. Okay. So the first one, the theme is the Cinderella story. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So everybody loves the Cinderella story in in March Madness. So I'm going to give you three teams that could be the Cinderella this year. So start, sub, sit. 
The 13 seed Liberty. Ooh, remind me who they're playing. They're playing Oklahoma State. Ooh, okay. The 12th seed Georgetown playing Colorado. Yep. Or the 12th seed out here on the West Coast, UC Santa Barbara playing Creighton. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's a good one. I haven't seen Santa Barbara, so I'm going to be winging it, but I hear good things about them. Yep. So I'm going to start Georgetown okay. simply because they've played at this level. Well, I'm, I'm going to back up. Okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go with Santa Barbara because I think there's always going to be this, there's going to be one or two or three of these type of three fourteens, five twelves. I was a three fourteen back in 95 when we upset at Manhattan, my good friend, Kelvin Sampson's team. And I'm going to go with Cal Santa Barbara, although I don't know much about them. My friends out West tell me they've had a great year. Yeah. Creighton is uh, reeling a little bit coming off a bad loss to Georgetown. They had some stuff going on, as you guys know. So I'm going to start UCSB in a win over Creighton. Okay. I'm going to sub Georgetown simply because that's really not a five. What is that? What are they? A 12 seed? They're a 12. Yeah. That's not yeah. really a 5-12. I mean, the way they played at the end of the year, I think that's a relatively even matchup. And I'll sit Liberty only because Oklahoma State, the coach, is, coach Boynton's done an amazing job, not only because he's got Cade, but they play hard. They play together. They're into it. I love Richie McKay's team. They shoot the daylights out of the three balls, so they're dangerous. But I think Oklahoma State, I'm going to sit Liberty. So I'm going to go with the Gauchos. Okay. Yeah. If you were coaching a team, would you rather be coaching the team that like Georgetown got hot coming in? So Colorado's not going to sleep on them or a team that had an early, you had the early exit in your conference tournament and you got in and kind of like having that bitter taste in the first round. Early exit, early exit. You you know, and I've I've talked to coaches about this. I talked to Scott Drew about this. They haven't practiced in so long because they were COVID paused. That he said to me the other night, I'm I'm glad we lost when we did. I would have hated to lose tomorrow night in the championship because it would have taken more out of us and we still need practice time. So I do yeah. I do think a good team with an early I, I believe in a I believe in good losses. Mm-hmm. I believe in good losses. I think a good loss recalibrates your team, especially if you've had success all year and you know what success looks like and feels like and what it looks like in practice. That when you have a, a loss like that at the end of your season in a conference tournament, I definitely believe that you can recalibrate your team, refocus, figure out what went wrong, how to improve it in a, in a few days that you can practice, and then also use it as a motivator to you know get ready for the next opponent. Now, if you're the AD, what's the answer to that question? <laughs> you better have a long contract. I mean, is that, yeah. you know, or an AD that understands basketball, which you know is always yeah. seriously important when you take a job. You know, yeah. just this, you know. For sure. (laughs) Okay. All right, coach. My, um, our next theme is sleeping giants or teams with some coaching pedigree. Yeah. So start, sub or sit Syracuse, the 11 seed Michigan state, also the 11 seed or Oregon, the seventh seed, which team will you think make, let's say get the sweet 16 or make the deepest run. Okay. That's a good one. That's a good one. I have to think about that. I got, um, uh, not seeing a bracket in front of me, I'd say Oregon because um, I like their talent. They had injuries. They've got everybody back. I don't know how they lost the way they did. I didn't see that game. but Coach, if you want the bracket, I've got it here. Oregon plays VCU yeah. in the first yeah. round. Yeah. And who do they play in the second round to get to the Sweet 16? So they would play Iowa or Grand Canyon. Oh, okay. And then who's and Michigan State's going to play? UCLA. Uh, and then they have a, a Texas. They have Texas. BYU, if they if they beat UCLA in the yeah. play-in, they'll BYU and then it'll be Texas. Okay. And then Syracuse, they're they're gonna sit. They're sitting. They're they're sitting. <laughs> don't worry about them. They're sitting. I just don't <laughs> I don't believe in them this year. But Oregon, all right, I'm gonna go with Oregon here because I'm gonna go with Oregon because I think they can give Iowa a lot of trouble because of their changing defenses. Yeah. Um, no, no, I'm not committed to Oregon. I'm not. I'm going to, I'm going to go with Oregon as a sub. Okay. And I'm going to go with Michigan state because number one, that first game against UCLA is winnable. Mm -hmm. They're pretty much evenly matched. I think they're tough, tough enough to beat BYU. And then I do think they can beat Texas easier than Oregon can beat Iowa. So as much as I love Texas and I've seen them a lot and they're playing well, 
if you made me choose between which team gets to the Sweet 16, I would go Michigan State over Oregon because Oregon versus Iowa. Iowa plays multiple defenses. They're not going to be flustered and flummoxed, by the way. Oregon and Dana changes his zone to the man to match up. So I'm going to go with uh, Michigan State as a team I would start. Okay. Well, I got to the around to the right answers. Yeah, it's <laughs> okay. It's a, that was a tough one. I mean, yeah. hard to go against Izzo yeah. in March. And, and one other thing about that, there's nobody better at understanding what a two-game weekend is uh, other than Izzo. And in this case, it's a three-game thing. was a playing game. But the art form of the tournament is to treat each weekend as its own mini tournament. Yeah. And Coach Izzo has proven time and time again they have a formula for getting ready for the opponents they have to play. Coach, my next start subset, this is themed major pains. So these are eight or nine seeds from major conferences okay. that will face a one seed in the second round and could upset them. Okay. okay. So start subset, LSU over, they would play Michigan in the second round. Got it. Wisconsin over Baylor in the second round or Georgia Tech over Illinois in the second round? Okay, so I'm going to start Wisconsin over Baylor. Uh, And the reason is, and Scott Drew is one of my close friends, Baylor has got to get their mojo back quickly. The COVID pause took a lot out of them. We're talking three weeks of no practices. Now, some teams like Michigan, they were on a COVID break. They, they could practice, but they couldn't play games. Yeah. Baylor was shut down for three weeks. So I'm going to start Wisconsin, even though, and, and they have upperclassmen. They've been together four years. They're going to grind it out. They're going to make you play half court. They're going to get back in transition. They're not going to crash the offensive glass. And Coach Drew, I hope, doesn't hear this, but I'm going to start Wisconsin. <laughs> I'm going to sub LSU because of their terrific talent. Um, they've got some great guards and, and trend in Watford. I think their athleticism could sneak up on Michigan. Although I think Michigan's really well coached by the way, guys. And if you're listening to the podcast, Jawan Howard runs some great quick hitter stuff, great yep. stuff. Oh yeah. And, and, and then I'll sit my good friend, Josh Passer over Illinois. I think that they were fortunate, not fortunate to win it, but just had a good road to the, Championship game of the ACC. What I think it was Virginia that they were supposed to play. I think and, yep. and couldn't play. And so I think Illinois is a buzzsaw right now, with the size inside with Kofi Coburn and the great guards and some guys that can shoot it. They have a backup point guard who's really good, the freshman Curbelo. So that would be my order. Yeah, coach. Just quick follow up on this one before we move on. How much does you know the Big Ten is just such a good conference this year? So how much does that really help like a Wisconsin being so battle-tested coming into this tournament? It's a two-edged sword every year. Same thing in the Big 12 this year. And it's, it's always the same when you're in a league where six or seven teams are really, you know, close to equal. That two months can really wear you out. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it can battle-test you. I also know that every coach I talk to can't wait to get out of their league into the NCAA tournament so they don't have to deal with teams that know every move and right. know tendencies and know that your guy doesn't ever drive left. And that doesn't happen quite as much in, in NCAA tournament play. It's balanced out. I really think it's balanced out. On the one hand, a long season takes a lot out of you and it can wear on you. And on the other hand, getting out of your conference battle test is a good thing. And it works in reverse for the Zags because they you know, we've talked, I've talked to coach few about this. Obviously they haven't had a lot of close games for two months yet. They're fresh. They're sharp. They're still playing the way they, you know, the, the way we saw them play early in the year for the most part, but they have not hit a buzzsaw in quite a while. Right. You know, maybe BYU scared them a little bit in that one game, but so I think it works both ways. And I don't know if there's a best way or a worse way, you know, for a team, it's just, part of the road that you have to travel. Georgia Tech was your sit. If I would have said Loyola of Chicago, because that's who Georgia Tech plays, would they still have sat in those three? Or what do you think of Loyola? Um, I, I give Loyola the edge in that game. Georgia Tech can certainly sure. play with them and beat them. But 
I, I like Loyola. I like their, I like the big guy as a facilitator yep. and he's the wheel that makes everything go. If there's a coach, we can throw a few out there, but if there's one coach, your listeners want to study this summer offensively and defensively because of his great connection to coach Majerus and his own, his own success, it's Porter Moser. They do some really cool stuff yep. offensively and defensively. That's a great program to study in the off season. Absolutely. Okay. Coach. This one is three seeds. So looking at the three seeds yeah. to, to, to reach the final four. Okay. Um, now, unfortunately, we're going to give you basically all four seeds. So you're going to have to basically cut one. Okay. Start, sub, sit, cut. Yeah. All right. So Kansas, Texas, Arkansas, West Virginia. I'm going to go this way. And I, I'll look at the bracket while it comes up on my screen. But I think Texas is the best team of that group. I, I love Texas. And I actually have them going to the final four. I haven't done my bracket, but I saw it already. And who, who would they play as a one seed? They're in Michigan's bracket. Yeah, I love Texas. Texas has veteran guards, battle tested, told they weren't good enough, told that, you know, the ups and downs over four years, figured it out. Great point guard coming off of a great Big 12 tournament, four year starter. They have mobile bigs, athletic bigs, two or three pros on the front line, NBA players. They can shoot it. They've got depth. They've got some grit and toughness. So I like Texas. I think the second best team. And again, one this Kansas team has been hit ravaged by COVID. We don't know if they're going to be at full strength. So I'm actually going to I'm going to cut them. Okay, I'm going to cut them. Okay, okay. Uh, the the second team, I think West Virginia would play which one seed? They're in Illinois' bracket. Interesting matchup of a coach and mentor, a mentor and a mentee, Underwood and Huggins. That would be fun. And then tell me who Arkansas would play. Uh, Arkansas is the three seed in um, Baylor's bracket. Okay. So Arkansas, I, I love Arkansas be, just simply because I'm not, I'm not sold on Baylor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they may prove me wrong and I'm friends, friendly with them. So I hope they prove me wrong. And then I would sit West Virginia because I just don't trust them. They, they've been up and down the last month. I, I love them, but I don't trust them. Yeah. When thinking of this question, the last three years, a three seed has made it to the final four. So, yeah. you know, Shaka Smart's been building that Texas program for a few years now and might be yeah. their time. It could be. And then, and again, one of the things about them is they're, they're kind of playing with a chip on their shoulder. Sure. You know, and I, you know, I, it, although I got to tell you guys, all of this analysis I'm giving you <laughs> pretty much can go out the window <laughs> right. because my philosophy of basketball has always been in a 35 game season, you're going to play five games over your head. Every shot goes in. Doesn't matter who you're playing. Yep. And, and at night you're playing a bad team, like in the opening round, a four versus 13. If the four plays one of its five best teams of the year, they win by 40 points. But they also, there's five games during the year where they absolutely play lousy. We all do. And the other 25 is who your team is. And so what happens in the tournament is I'm doing all this diagnosis here and you know, one of these teams, like like Oklahoma State Liberty, I know how well Liberty shoots the ball. And it could be one of those games where they make 14 threes. Right. And Oklahoma State goes, you know, three for 18 from three. And Kate Cunningham picks up 3,000 in the first half, which he's done a few times. So this is all fragile. Yep. This is all fragile. That's why everybody loves talking about brackets, though. So yeah. <laughs> Don't listen to me filling out the brackets. It blows up like after like the early session of the first yeah. day. Coach, last start sub sip before okay. we close. It's the big boys. So the number one seeds. We're gonna take Gonzaga out of this okay. equation because they're just okay. so heavily favored to make the final four. But number one seeds likeliness to make the final four. Start sub sit. I think I know your answer hearing you talk over the last hour, but Illinois, Baylor, and Michigan. Well, I'm going to pull for Baylor every day of the week because of my friendship with Coach Drew, but I, I got to see them get back to where they were, and I'm not sure I could do that right now. So I would say, given the liver situation at Michigan, and I don't know if he'll play or how seriously he was injured after the Big Ten tournament, I just think Illinois got the pieces. And by the way, Baylor beat Illinois early in the year. Right. But that never seems to matter because I've always felt this. Again, you're getting all my coaching philosophy wrapped up in an NCAA tournament preview. <laughs> a team never stays the same over the course of four months in college, high school. You're either getting better or getting worse. You're just never going to stay the same. Mindset, 
kids checking out with a month to go in the season, right? We, we you know, losses, yep. injury. So, like Scott Drew said during COVID, teams got better, we got worse. He said it. He goes, it's true. You don't practice for three, three weeks. This Illinois team, is, they've got a point guard who makes big plays. They've got a big man. They've got role players. They've got starters coming off the bench and Bahanashvili. Um, they got a great backup point guard, the co-pilot. You got to have – it's great to have two guys you can put on the court late in games to both can make plays, co-pilots. I'm a big believer in mental health breaks for your point guard without taking him out of the game. You know, it's another Gordy Chiesa line. Give your point guard a mental health break. Have a second ball handler out there with him. So I like Illinois to start. I like Michigan to sub. I like Baylor to sit. Well, Coach, you're off the hot seat. We'll wrap it up with you here. Thanks so much again for spending time with us, Coach. This is a blast to have you back. Pleasure. Keep up what you're doing. You know how I feel. And again, it's 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 what you're doing for coaches and helping them get better. And, and uh, we all appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Coach. Last thoughts here from you. Coming out of a season where we didn't have March Madness, now it's back. Can you just talk about you know the joy around the tournament, what it means to college basketball to have this tournament back this year? It's important. And it's important to the psyche of our community, our basketball community. You know, it's something that we're all used to. We love March Madness. We all love going to the Final Four. You know, the beauty of the Final Four is the fans who come, the coaching community. You know, my high school coaching friends, my JUCO, my JUCO coaching friends, my D3 coaching friends, we're all one big community. You know, we all help each other. And also our job as mentors and coaches is to get the best out of our kids and to give them life experiences that they can look back on 25, when you have the 25 year reunion of a championship team or an NCAA team or get into a, a D3 elite eight. It's really basketball to all of us who love the game as fans, as coaches, as players. You know, I, I said at the beginning of the year, we're going to have a lot of bumps in the road and we're going to have pauses and we're going to have those kind of issues. But I was not going to lose my joy for the game. And I haven't. And I'm ecstatic about the start of the tournament. I'm ecstatic about doing the NIT. And hopefully, you know, in the bigger picture, a year from now, we're going to have fans in the stands and we're going to celebrate the great game. And we're going to look back on this year or so. And, you know, you guys are a little younger, but you're going to tell your grandkids about this craziness of 2020. And you're going to tell your basketball players 20 years from now, you think you got it rough losing three in a row. You should have seen that. You should have seen 2020. Right. I don't want to hear your complaint. Because, you know, you know, your locker, there's a leak above your locker and we got to fix the leak. You know, no, you need, you need to be around in 2020. And that's what we've all lived through. And that's the perspective of being a mentor teacher to our young people. So, hey, I hope we have a great NCAA tournament and see the coaches and the players compete. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to the newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Slapping Glass.